Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Folks, this is a, a really special interview for me. Uh, back in the 1970s, when the band Heart started recording their first few albums, becoming one of the most iconic bands of the era, and fortifying their place in rock history with songs like Magic Man, Barracuda, Dog and Butterfly, Mr. All Wind, and Crazy on You. I was just a kid, not even in kindergarten yet, but Hart's songs were already in my musical consciousness. I was listening to Hart not only because their music was all over the radio, but also because I had a connection to them that none of my friends or classmates had. My dad, Greg Smith, was the private pilot for Hart and flew them all over the world on tour throughout the 70s and 80s. At one point, about half of my childhood wardrobe consisted of Hart concert t-shirts. I even got to meet Hart several times over the years, usually backstage at a concert. Because of that connection, and because of my deep respect for the musicianship and songwriting in that band, I will always think of Hart as one of the most formative bands for me growing up. That is why I'm so excited to be sitting down with Roger and Michael Fisher. Born in Seattle, Washington, on February 14, 1950, Roger Fisher was a founding guitarist of Heart, a band that is globally known through the sales of more than 40 million albums. Roger has played in every major city in North America many times. He has also toured Europe, Japan, Australia, Uzbekistan, and Russia, and performed at massive events in Czech Republic, Japan, Canada, and the United States for more than 300,000 people at a single rock show. He has appeared in a multitude of television shows, including Johnny Carson and Jay Leno, and television broadcasts for more than 60 million people in Europe. Songs featuring Roger's songwriting and iconic guitar riffs have been used in numerous TV commercials, TV shows, Guitar Hero, the video game, and in several movies, including Charlie's Angels and Shrek 3. Other artists have covered his material, including Eminem. His timeless anthem guitar intro to Barracuda is frequently used as the lead-in for nationally broadcasted radio talk shows. And Tony Robbins refers to it as part of the turning point in his life. As the original guitarist for Heart, Roger was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with the band in 2013. Roger's new albums, All Told and Heart of the Blues, are the first of many new releases with Brother Mike, a.k.a. Magic Man. Together, the brothers are creating a massive multimedia endeavor called the One Vision Project. Although Michael didn't play an instrument in heart, he was behind the scenes when the band was formed, serving not only as the band's first manager, but also as a visionary figure for the band, helping them navigate the treacherous and unpredictable waters of the music industry and touring scene, as well as influencing the direction of their music. Michael was so revered and respected by the band, he was the inspiration behind the song Magic Man, a nickname for Michael that has stuck for more than 40 years after the song was written. So with Michael at the helm of the band and Roger on guitar, along with bandmates Steve Fossen, Mike DeRozier, Howard Lease, and Annie Nancy Wilson, Hart recorded their first four hit records, Dreamboat Annie, Little Queen, Magazine, and Dog and Butterfly. Roger Fisher and Michael Fisher, welcome to the Dream Path Podcast. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be here. The way it happened was there was a version of Heart that broke up. 
disbanded. And then there was this other band called Hocus Pocus. And then she left that band and joined me up in Canada. And then we created Heart Together, Roger, Ann, and Steve and I. Okay. So, Michael, um, you what was your role in the band Army back in 63? I was the guy with the money and a job, <laughs> <laughs> which gave me a certain amount of authority to uh, speak my, put in my two cents or my 25 bucks worth, whatever it was, and, and have an opinion that would make a difference on whether or not we got a gig or bought some equipment or what song we might play or how we might look on stage or, you know, all of those kinds of management kind of things. So how many years older are you than two. two years older? So Roger was 13 and you were 15? Well, we didn't start the band when he was 13, did we? <laughs> I'm, I'm working no, off of Wikipedia on some of this. So. Yeah, I didn't start playing until I was 15, 1965. Oh, okay. And so we would have started the Army probably in 1966. Yeah. Seems 66. like so long ago. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah. Uh, gee. Because we... Uh, let's see, we played my high school auditorium the year after I was after I graduated, and that was really fun to go back and have our band, which was really good. That band army was great. And and you played in, in high school auditoriums and, and that type of thing? Yeah, as it was army? actually the, the theater. It was a really nice theater. And uh, what high school was that? That was Inglemore High School. Okay. And where's that? It's in the Kenmore area. Oh, okay. North Seattle suburb, kind of. Yeah. And so you had a job, you were older than Roger, and you were kind of guiding guiding the band. Were you also playing in the band? No, I didn't play in the band. I swore off playing. It's a long story. We don't need to get into it. But <laughs> I swore off playing when I was about 11 or 10 years old and uh, really became uh interested in visual arts and so i was interested in painting and drawing and really serious about it really studied art history and um realized that this music thing is art too it's these like a, musicians are like a palette of paints you know and you can work with them and create this living piece of art yeah. by by working with people like that and and you found yourself working with musicians in a different way. Yeah, that correction is really key because the thing that happened when that band broke up is is like such a key point in the way that Hart came together because it was a love affair between Anne and I. And, and it was incredibly intense. And... Uh, I just loved her, her singing and her musical side. And so what I thought would be really incredible was to take that sensibility that she had and combine it with this rock energy that Raj had. And I couldn't think of any other band that existed that had those elements so powerfully put together. Yeah. So and so I was fired up about this vision I had for, for what that band could become. So... Just so I'm clear on the history and, the, and sort of the evolution of the the names of the band, um, Army 
was the band before Anne got into the picture, right? right? And then when Anne, when you met Anne and and had a, a romance with her uh, and fell in love with her, um, that army broke up and then a new band was formed called Hocus Pocus. Is that correct? No, army broke up. Army kind of transformed into this band called Whiteheart. Oh, okay. And then that shortened to just Heart, and then that band broke up. And then they created Hocus Pocus, Roger, Steve, and Ann created that band. And it was um, totally different than what Heart was, what Heart was to be in the, in the future. It was oh, okay. a whole different kind of uh, musical approach. So Hocus Pocus was after the old version of Heart, but before the version of Heart that made the four albums that we just heard about. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Yeah. We didn't know what we were going to call it. Um, That was a spirited discussion (laughs) because Anne wanted to call it something different. And and I really uh, had this idea for a, a cool promotional photo that used a piece of equipment that had heart stenciled on it I thought it would be really cool and uh and Rod was real set on having it called heart too so that's what we did so what year did you meet Anne? i think it was 71 and how did you meet her well all of this was taking place against the backdrop of the vietnam war and another long story that i can't go into in the kind of detail it deserves but I ended up living in Canada, and I was going to college up there, and I really missed my brother, so I would make these trips down to visit him, Um, and it turned out that he was playing in Bellingham, which is just across the border from Vancouver, where I lived, and he had this new band he was all excited about, and he was excited about how good the singer was, and so... I wanted to go see my bro, and uh, uh, we walked into this club, and Ann was sitting on the floor with a glass of wine in one hand, a cigarette in the other hand, and some written lyrics uh, between her cross-legged legs. And she looked up at me, and I looked at her, and it was just like that, just love at first sight. It was really something. So that was 1971. Roughly, wasn't it, do you think? Yeah, mm-hmm. that would have been about right. Because didn't she move up in 72? I think so. Yeah, I think so. It was probably the fall of 71. And when you say moved up, you mean she moved it to Canada with with you? Yeah, she. we, we were uh, kind of carrying on a uh, written uh, back and forth, you know, long before the internet. <laughs> and uh, one day she appeared at my door. Total surprise to me. There she was. In Canada. Yeah. And I, I read, and I'm, I'm sorry to um, refer to Wikipedia so often, but that's like my one of my main sources of information on, on these interviews sometimes before I go into them. Um, but I read that you both lived at the, at the same house in Canada or at a U.S. territory in Canada Such or something like that. Such an amazing story. You know, yeah. you really need hours and hours to do this properly. Right. But... Uh, we have as much time as, as the memory card will hold. So. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> I had gone through a series of kind of communal homes that, that I created. And 
this last one where Anne joined me was this in, this incredible estate on a couple acres in West Vancouver in a super nice neighborhood with a mountain stream flowing through it, garden park-like grounds. And this kind of little mini mansion there where the people had built a, a playroom for their kids with a kitchen and bathroom and everything in it next to their house kind of over hanging over the, the mountain stream. And I mean, it was a round. Yeah, round house. with floor to ceiling windows three quarters of the way around it. Uh, it was a spectacular place to live. I lived there by myself because I had rented this whole place and rented it out to my friends and some strangers. And it turned out that it wasn't a compatible living situation because I was responsible to the landlord and I just couldn't conscionably continue with the way it was being treated. So I had to evict everybody. <laughs> there I was with a great big empty house and I lived in the little roundhouse. And uh, so um, Roger and Steve and and they moved up with Ann and I. And then we all lived in that one room with all our equipment. Yeah. And uh, for a while. And Ann and Steve and I became landed immigrants so we could work up there. And uh, and what kind of work were you doing up there? Just like music or were you yeah, doing just yeah, music? Just music. And we were so poor. All we had was a 50 pound bag of short grain brown rice. Uh, to live off, and so Anne would make a different, different kind of brown rice every night for dinner. We we had a little bit of money that we got from Mike, I guess, and we would buy some vegetables and my student loan. Yeah, yeah, his wow. student loan. <laughs> yeah, and so you're. It, it almost sounds like a communal living situation where you're all kind of helping each other and. And you, you don't have a lot of money, but you're just making things work however you can manage them. We had so little money that we we didn't have uh, enough to pay for heat. We didn't have a phone. Um, we were so short on food that we would scavenge food from the neighbor's gardens sometimes. We would go to a gas station and steal toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. It was really on the edge. In fact, um, the, the reason, the way we got our first job was we actually completely ran out of money. I, I, I had one dime left, and that in those days you had to use a dime to use the phone if you didn't have one at home. Yeah. <laughs> I went down to the drugstore with my dime to call a booking agent to see if we could get a gig. Uh, I, I used the, the pharmacy down the hill, and I put my dime in and called the, the major agent in Vancouver, who has become really famous over the years. And it's part of the bigger story, that guy. But uh, he took my call and he told me um, that he would come and see us and wanted to know where we were playing. And I, I said, I gave him the address. He said, well, that sounds like it's a house. And I said, yeah, yes, yeah, we're rehearsing in our basement. And so he said, well, call me back when you have a gig and hung up on me. <laughs> hmm. So the pharmacist I, heard what was going on. Yeah, he was my friend because uh, I used the phone all the time, so we were friendly. And, and so, what'd you do next? He looked at me, and said, "Geez, Mike, looks like you just lost your best friend. What happened?" And I told him, and he said, "Oh, here, 
gave me another dime and said, call the next guy. <laughs> so I, I went through the yellow pages and, and I saw this other booking agency and it was in our neighborhood. It was like blocks away. So I called the guy and this delightful English accent answered the phone. And, and it was this really cool guy. He said, I'll be right over. So in a few minutes, this little English guy that looked like Dudley Moore mm -hmm. <laughs> pulls up in a canary yellow uh, Jaguar XKE convertible. It's just like right out of the movies. And came down and listened to us play, uh, I think it was our Led Zeppelin medley <laughs> we had. And he was absolutely blown away. And it was it's such a good memory to have. So it just turned out to be our luck that the biggest nightclub in Vancouver, which was called The Cave, it was really this cool place. It was all designed like a cave inside. Um, the band that was supposed to play there that weekend had canceled, and they brought in national acts from, you know, wherever. And so they desperately needed somebody. So he arranged for an audition for us. So we went down there. This great big huge club, and uh, the band was really nervous because we hadn't played for anybody yet. And we set up. It was Steve, Roger, and Ann. Yeah, and okay. a couple other musicians from Canada that we had hired. And so we're getting ready to to do the audition, and Ann is so nervous that she goes and throws up in the bathroom <laughs> right before she goes to play, and that the club owner comes and sits right in the middle of the dance floor, one chair, one guy, and we're playing for him. It's really a lot of pressure. And I don't know uh, if he liked us that much, but he was pretty stuck. So he had us be the headliner, and he, and he called us Hart from San Francisco. And the band that was the opening act was this really big Canadian Vancouver local band that had a new album out on the radio. And they, they had to open for these nobodies from <laughs> West Vancouver. And uh, they, they really didn't like it that they had to do that. But uh, So it went pretty well? Yeah. What was that? Who was that band? I think it was High Flying Bird. Oh, wow. Yeah. So after that, was that a turning point for, for that version of the, the band Heart at that well, point? Well, yeah, that was the launch. Yeah. Yeah. And so we played probably every weekend. Maybe we missed one or two somewhere, but I think we played continuously after that. Sometimes 14 days in a row or more, you know, five sets a night. That's how you get really good. So you're able to buy more than rice at that point? Well, not much because we, we played cheap because we had to work. We, we had no choice. So, yeah, we, we pooled our money and uh, we, we made it work. So when did you make your way back down to the States? Um, well, let's see, 74, I think. Yeah. And is that about the time that Nancy joined the band? No, the, uh, Nancy came up to visit her sister. And right away we knew that we had to get Nancy in the band, but she was going to the university and and her parents had other plans for her. You know, they didn't want her to end up being a musician god yeah. forbid <laughs> no parent does <laughs> yeah. she was getting like straight a's in in college and and you know they really had high hopes for her and 
but she couldn't resist, you know, the the musical life. And lucky for her, she she decided to join us. And then she, I, I think I read that she actually moved in with you guys up there before you all came back to the United States. Mm-hmm. Okay. And is that when, and, and I don't want to get too gossipy with the, the interview, but is that when the, the romance started, Roger, with you and Nancy? Roughly, yeah. So she moved up and uh, yeah, I guess it was shortly after she moved up, uh, she started to come and see what I was doing. I was living with a luthier and it was fascinating because uh, this guy was a real guitar maker and I was trying to learn the craft. And so I was, you know, doing some, some woodworking and uh, she and I just started hanging out together and my God, it was amazing. <laughs> yeah. Cause I had had my eyes on her for a long time and she wasn't real thrilled about getting together with me because she saw that I was with, you know, many different other girls. And, uh, You're, she thought you might be a player. Yeah. So, yeah. so, uh, but you know, we seemed pretty attracted to each other. And so it, we got together. Yeah. And, and that was about 74 then or a little later than no, that? No, that would be earlier than that. Oh, earlier than yeah. 74. So okay. we, we played in Canada for, uh, several, well, two or three years, um, before we ended up going back down. Yeah. We kind of, uh, became a, a big fish in a small pond kind of in a way in our, in our, uh, stratus of uh in vancouver yeah western canada yeah and so when you made your way back down to the united states was that before the first studio album yeah okay and then t- tell us how the first studio album came together and and what that process okay. looked like we were making the the first studio album before we went down weren't we no because I, I was living with Flickr. Me and Nance were living with Flickr while we were recording the album. Yeah, but we had been down to the States before that. Mm. No, uh, the way it came about was that uh, before <clears throat> I went to Canada, um, we were recording, uh, I guess our band was called Whiteheart then, we were recording here in the Seattle area with uh, Buck Ormsby and Neil Rush. Uh, Buck Ormsby was with the Whalers, uh, and Neil Rush with with Merrily Rush and the Turnabouts, and uh, we did a a couple songs with them, and God, we were just so thrilled by that. And then I had to leave abruptly and kind of went my own way. And when we got all fired up about creating Heart, of course we wanted to record, and in the meantime. I had, uh, Raj and I had been talking about creating a new band. And I, as soon as I got up to Canada, I started looking around at the recording scene. And it was really cool up here. I mean, up in Vancouver. It was a more robust um, recording scene than in Seattle. And uh, there was an article in the paper about this hot new producer that had moved up from L.A., to, to work at the studio in Canada. 
And I just thought, wow, that's cool. I got to go check that guy out. You know, maybe he could work with us. And so I went and met this guy, and it was Mike Flicker. And he was he was just new then in Vancouver. And uh, he was really nice. And he was encouraging, told me to come back when we had our band together, which, we, you know, we didn't even have a band at the time. And so um, we went about creating the band and in the process we met this uh, engineer who worked at that studio this guy who was uh, an aspiring recording engineer he's kind of working his way up the ladder and he liked our band he would come and see us all the time and uh, we said well you know what what's Flickr doing you know and he would kind of keep us posted on that and then we decided to make a demo so we could shop our band to music labels. And at this point, Nancy and Ann are in, and it's the 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 second version of Heart, or the the, the real version, the of real Heart. version yeah. of Heart. Okay, the the one that became successful and everybody knows and loves. Right. Yeah. So we went and made this demo with our own money, and met uh, Howard Lease, who was uh, kind of a studio musician there. And best friends of Mike Flicker, they had moved up together. Yeah, and he was uh, just a really great guitar player and and kind of a real good uh, student of music. And uh, he helped us with the production. And in the meantime, we're talking to Flicker about it, and he's not very encouraging. And I... I asked him to produce us, and he said, well, the only one I would be interested in would be Anne. And I said, well, um, we're a band, so that won't work. <laughs> and so we went about, and we shopped our tape and got zero interest in it. And uh, meanwhile, the band is becoming more and more popular on the local level and then we started playing down in the seattle area and around the northwest uh, idaho montana oregon and really drawing big crowds uh as a band playing covers a lot of led zeppelin songs and yes and a lot of stuff that other bands weren't playing and uh we were actually out drawing a national acts some of the places we would play in vancouver and and Calgary and, and Great Falls and Seattle and Spokane and Portland. Yeah, it was amazing. And now we were starting to make some money too. And uh, our our local draw in Vancouver became so obvious that you almost couldn't go wrong by making a record with us. And I went back to Flickr and I said, gee, you know, <laughs> this is like a slam dunk, don't you think? And he said, well, I like Roger and Nancy and Ann, but that's all I, I want to do business with. You know, I don't, the rest of the guys, as you know, we could use studio musicians, you know. So I said, okay, well, we got to have the bass player. Yeah. yeah. And so he said, okay, we'll give it a try. Uh, so we'll do one song. And the, the beauty of the Canadian scene was that in Canada, they have this thing called Canadian content where they have to have like a third of the music be created by Canadians on the radio. So, you know, Canada has a population of less than California to draw from for their 30% of the content. Right. And then, you know, there's a lot of musician music coming from England too, uh, 
that's competing for space on the radio. So they have to come up with some decent stuff, and and that gives record companies and people who want to invest in that uh, a lot of freedom to feel like they might have success. So we recorded this song called How Deep It Goes, and they put it out, and it, it was it got some success in some cities, but it wasn't like huge. It was like it was number one in in Victoria, <laughs> and in a few other cities. But uh, mostly, it was just kind of there, you know. And but it was enough that they the label which we we were on, which was from that studio called Mushroom Records, decided to do a whole album. And that's kind of how it got started. And is that what? what um you would refer to as being signed to a label mm -hmm. yeah so they they say all right let's do a full studio album and um what what's the process look like of creating uh dreamboat annie and I, I assume that that was the first album right mm -hmm. yeah so so what does that look like and what is your role at that point um in terms of sound and vision and um how you were influencing the process mike me personally yeah well, it this was like really a big deal for us. And we had thought about it for years. And we were in the milieu of performing in clubs in front of audiences all the time and trying to know what they were going to like, you know, you know, picking the the new songs we were going to play for them. So we were really attuned to what people liked and wanted and what would work and so in the songwriting we knew that we would need this kind of song to get this reaction or that kind of song to do that that really influenced uh the way the songs were written and kind of came because they were needed in addition to you know some of the things that were just sort of loved things about music that were just loved the album kind of grew organically out of that that potpourri of needs and and desires and and things that people liked about music well roger it it sounds like what, what i'm hearing from mike is that you guys have this this crew of people and their friends and their um lovers and um you know you're you're together in this band but you have outside influences saying no we want that person or these this group of people but you guys are resisting that and you're you, you are insisting on staying together mm -hmm. is that kind of a theme that uh, when you look back on the history of the band that that there were these influences from the outside trying to pull you apart but you 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 had to hold it together through loyalty and friendship well yeah that was just one little uh, instance of uh, a choice that we had to make and we chose to be a band rather than, you know, jump on the first opportunity that comes along. Oh, another correction is, uh, so I didn't start Alias. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was a really, really, uh, really unpleasant experience. It was a, a situation where the record company had this idea that if they got the former heart guys and the former sheriff guys and put them together, that that would be something they could make money off. So the sheriff guys uh, made an album, and then the record company 
along with the sheriff guys, made it appear that this was a band that had made this album, these former Heart guys and the former sheriff guys. So it was this big scam of untruth. And it just really disgusted me. And I let everybody know that I didn't want to be a part of that. And I, I quit the group. And then their manager called me one day and worked me and worked me and worked me and finally convinced me to to go ahead and stay in the band. So I did. And we went to New York City and we were doing a an all-day promo push where we we were calling uh, radio stations all over the country. We spent all day and we each of us had different stations, different cities allocated to us. And so when I heard what our tack was, what our spin was on our story, I said, I'm not saying that bullshit. I'm not going to lie like that. And when the record company guys heard that, it was like this, oh, oh, we got a real problem here. So they had us come to this conference room and they sat us down and said, Roger, just sidestep it, just sidestep it, just, you know, work around it, you know. And so I agreed to go ahead and do the dance and it was just so against my principles. And then when we went out and did our thing, uh, it was just so miserable because it was just we were just constantly being taken advantage of by by the record company and by our management, and it was just a disgusting uh, experience. It was a real good learning experience for me, but at least I had the balls to stand up for truth, and so that was good, and and it set the characters it made it obvious to everybody involved which characters stood for what yeah and so i was alone <laughs> it, it revealed integrity or lack of integrity exactly yeah it's interesting what the um what you find on the internet as truth you know with this wikipedia thing and anybody can edit there's it. there's a lot know. of stuff on there that's not real yeah about uh, us i mean so mike i, I want to know more about your um your role in the band you know because i i when i was at the um concert last night in edmonds i heard roger talk about you as the magic man and um that that you were the inspiration for that song or or something like that and what in your mind was your role in the band in that era that would lead your brother Roger to say that you were, you know, the magic man. What what was going on? I'd be real then? interested to know what's in his mind. <laughs> right, right. Well, maybe you could tell us, Roger. Well, that was a moniker given by Anne. Well, before that, it... well, yeah, it was just the the time that uh, that Steve and I and Anne moved up to Canada, became landed and worked on our music project together was a really magical time. It was so strange, the things that went on sometimes. Mike was always really adept at being tenacious enough to land us a good house to rent. And that was 
true even before we moved up when he was just living with all his buddies up there. He would find these great deals on houses. And I think that's where he first got the moniker Magic, Magic Man. Resource Mikey is what they called me. <laughs> <laughs> because he would uh, land on these great deals and, and great places, wonderful opportunities of places to live. And that continued on uh, as we moved around a bit when we lived up there. And uh, But in addition to that, I remember times like playing Frisbee out on a field where I don't know if we had smoked some pot or what, but just unexplainable things would happen from time to time where it was like we entered a different dimension or something. Uh, I... I it's difficult to talk about because it was so otherworldly, so unreal, so magical. And so that was uh, kind of centered around Mike for me. You know, I, I would just come off as a kook if I tried to I explain or describe what happened. So all I can say is that there were really, really amazing magical occurrences that happened from time to time that I have no explanation for. Other than that, Mike was there at the time. And, yeah. And, and you're associating these things with Mike being there during important pivotal moments in your career, in your life. Is absolutely. That, yeah. Okay. And um, was that, you know, was that always the case when you're growing up? He's He's two years older than you. He's your older brother. Um, was Mike always someone that you looked up to and, and kind of were influenced by and in, impressed by as just as a human being? Hugely, yeah. Uh, so much so that when I started playing guitar, I became somewhat of a recluse and would just play, play, play all the time. And I lost some social skills and Mike would just always do the talking for me. And I became real dependent on that. And uh, I had a real kind of inferiority complex because I wasn't the one who was in charge of my communication part of myself, you know. And and I preferred not to be. I'd rather just sit and play guitar. <laughs> uh, and so that was something that I had to – that was some real baggage that I had to confront. And that happened – uh, when we were in Hart and we were in New York City and we were supposed to do a interview with Life Magazine. Life Magazine had been out of print for several years and this was their debut new magazine coming out again. And Hart was featured in it. And we were supposed to go to this uh, big deal interview. But that morning was the morning I decided, you know, I'm going to become my own person now and I'm going to make my own choices. And my first choice is I'm not going to that interview. I mean, I'm going to go walk around New York City and start to be a man who faces his own uh, demons and fears and dragons. And one by one, I'm going to face every fear until I'm not fearful anymore. And so... Uh, it was kind of a brave step, wasn't very considerate of my bandmates or management or anything, but I didn't care. I was making this uh, move. <clears throat> so that was a real turning point for me and 
uh, and a, re- a real important uh, dragon to to uh, to face. So I heard Mike earlier talk about um, him kind of walking away from musical instruments at the age of 11 and, and moving more toward visual arts and also, you know, uh, participating in the band in different ways other than by playing in the band, but influencing it in a, in a different way. Um, how did you develop as a musician and when did that start? Well, I started playing guitar at 15. It's a, an interesting story about how that came about. I'd been hanging around with these creeps in high school who uh there a, a typical a typical night hanging out with them was going out and breaking into houses and getting a bunch of things that they could sell and make money from as well as all the liquor in the house that we could find and then we would go to the uh uh the elementary school parking lot and divvy up the goods and get drunk and i would get brought home really late at night and and then have to go to school the next day and this went on and on for a while until, of course, we got busted. And I remember being so ashamed and humiliated when standing in front of the judge with my mom. The judge said, so what were some of the things that you took? And I said, well, I didn't take things. The only thing I ever took from all those break-ins was the eight ball off a pool table. And the judge says, well... I can see you're just hanging around with the wrong crowd. You're free to go. And so on the way home, mom said, well, (laughs) what can we do? What can you do with your time so that you're not doing this kind of stuff? And I said, well, could you rent me a guitar? (laughs) And uh, yeah, so I would practice eight hours a day with practicing the wrong stuff you know i was really intent on being a good guitar player and after about a year of playing i realized god that's that's really wrong what i was doing i've got to re totally relearn uh guitar playing now and but that was a that was an important lesson too and being a teacher now it's good to be able to tell a young student go this way don't go that way you know yeah so were you taking lessons or are you pretty self-taught just self-taught which was which was the problem which was why i spent a whole year going up a dead-end road that i shouldn't have gone up yeah well i mean the the musicianship that i hear on those albums those those four studio albums and also on your your solo record all told, and what I saw at Edmonds Performing, Performing Arts Center last night, um, you you seem to have, well, first of all, you're amazing. Um, I mean, it just rock legend level amazing at the guitar, lead guitar. But I, I notice um, that you're playing with your fingers a lot, almost like you're playing classical guitar sometimes, but you're really fast at it. And it, it seems a bit unorthodox. And I, I play guitar. I'm not good at it, but I know enough about it to see like classic, you know, um, by the book methods. And I, is, it, is that a, um, a product of your self-taught upbringing as a guitarist? Yeah, that's a real interesting topic because the classic uh, kind of traditional guitar playing that you hear – so many guitars touch on and use and 
uh, you could call them cliche licks. That's really not fair to call them cliche licks, but they are in a way that uh, so many people use these common commonalities. And I choose not to go there because uh, I just really don't like following the crowd. And when I was learning how to play guitar, I noticed that there's so many of these British musicians who were deeply influenced by blues players and they took old blues songs and redid them and created these amazing works. Uh, you know, uh, Led Zeppelin and so many of those bands. Peter Green. Yeah. With Mick, yeah. And, and Cream. And they were just heavily influenced by the blues and really created modern, inventive, creative versions of these songs. And of course, they were hugely popular. But I didn't want to have that same direction. So I thought, well, rather than be influenced by those blues players, I would like to pretend that I was one of those guys that went through hellish circumstances in the Delta uh, in slavery and had to rise above that pain and find my own voice. So I was one of the original blues players in, in my pre pretending mind rather than being influenced by them. And because I chose that road, I couldn't copy these, these guys. I had to come up with things that I'd never heard before. So that was my road. And I stayed on that road until, uh, you know, many years later, people say, you know, when I hear your guitar playing, I know it's you immediately because you don't sound like anybody else. And that's the that's my favorite compliment. Yeah, you know that's a, it makes a lot of sense um, because I I was listening for blues licks and kind of the standard. I mean, as a as a musician, I gravitate toward blues licks too because they're fun. They're you know probably on the easier side of things you know, to play. Uh, they're accessible, but I was listening for that on your album and at the concert and I didn't hear that. I don't hear a lot of blues influence. And now that you mention it, I don't hear a lot of any, any influences that are um, profound and obvious anyway. Um, but I did see when I was listening to all told there, there seems to be a almost rock opera level of ambition with that album. I mean, there's, it's a very big, album with big concepts and the songs are complex and there, there's just it's it's um pretty remarkable piece of music and and when, especially when you listen to it start to finish um what was your did, did you have a um goal in mind when you started recording that album in terms of what did you what you wanted to accomplish with all told well in the Mid-90s, I had a turning point musically where I realized that everything that I was doing musically was either just uh, not completely, but very self-oriented or money-oriented. And I thought that music is something really sacred, and I need to have a better uh, motivation than just self or uh financial motivation and so i i prayed for guidance and 
within two weeks, I had the uh, template for this uh, big project. It would be uh, it would be called One Vision, and it's a four album deal where uh, the four albums uh, combined make one picture, and that picture is in this frame. And so the project is uh, a frame with four albums in it, and uh, and All Told was the first album. So All Told needed to tell the story of all four albums in one album, or, or at least touch on all the different uh, tangents and uh, places that we wanted to go musically and lyrically. So it was it was a real challenging idea because we wanted to we wanted all told to dovetail with three other albums that we hadn't written or you know conceived yet so we did that and obviously it took a long time to create and we were always thinking of it in terms of like you know Beatles, Pink Floyd, Zeppelin, how uh, how great they were and, and how creative and innovative they were. And together we uh, helped evolve this concept of what All Told says. And rather than put too many words on what that concept is, uh, it does tell a story from beginning to end that when the listener experiences that my god it's a really deeply moving experience because it very clearly does what it's designed to do and it kind of tells the story of one person's life the uh the falling in love the losing of the parents the uh childlike joys of uh you know being young and and uh blind and in love and and then it sounds like you when you, the concept of the album um there was a visual component to it i mean you you talked about it visually in terms of what what you wanted to accomplish there's these there's these albums that aren't made yet let me inject something here so uh the story is really involved and to really tell it properly it would take a long time we're co-writing a book called Bros, and the story will really come out in that. But uh, Mike and I had worked together in Heart a lot, and then after Heart, we worked together and created some real amazing, totally wacky experimental music. And then we had a, a time when we weren't working together, and we had a kind of epiphany where we started to work together again, and Mike can tell that story. We kind of went our separate ways, where Roger was doing his thing and I was doing my thing, and we both raised families. And what time frame was that? Well, it kind of... Hmm, I, Mid-80s? Yeah, mid-80s, I guess we kind of went apart. But we always wanted to finish the stuff we had been working on. It was just busy, you know? I built a sound reinforcement company, and... Raj did Alias and other things. And uh, when our parents passed away, uh, it was like, like this sort of 
alarm clock in your life where you realize, gee, you know, I only have so much time left too. I got, I got things to do. I've got my bucket list, you know. Mm-hmm. And one of the big items for me was working with Raj again and finishing what we started. And so uh, we went on this trip to Europe. Uh, Roger was living in the Czech Republic then, and we kind of uh, went to Norway with my sister, Roger and my sister and I, and then went to the Czech Republic. And on that trip, Raj asked me to, to join him and finish that project that we'd started. And I wanted to, but um, I was busy. I was busy investing and doing really well with that and raising my family. And I was considering doing this way. I considered it for about two years. <laughs> and then we have these big family meetings. Uh, I have 11 children, and Roger has a whole big bunch of them. And, and uh, we meet at my sister's house or his house or my house and have uh, – just incredible bonding experiences. So this one day, Roger had just fallen in love with Linda Manning, his his girlfriend now, and he was just head over heels in love with her. And he wanted to play us this song that he had just written about her. And so he just, in front of the big group, uh, started playing this on his acoustic guitar and geez we we were just all so moved we all had tears in our eyes such a moving song and i just thought man that guy is great you know he deserves my support so i said okay give me all your music i want to hear everything you've ever done so he gave me about a hundred songs and in those days i was only working till about two o'clock in the afternoon when the market closed, and then I would go for a hike in the mountains or something. So I just took his music up there and would go way up high and park myself on some huge cliff somewhere and listen to the stuff. And Roger hadn't discussed anything about the One Vision Project or anything like that. It was just a blank slate. And I listened to all that material, and somehow out of listening to it all, I felt there's a story here. And in my investing, I was really interested in um, Apple and Steve Jobs and Pixar. And uh, one of the big things in, in the success of Pixar was the importance of story to the effectiveness of how well a movie communicates. And a story is everything to them, more important than anything else. And I thought, well, that should be that way in music too. And in fact, these songs have story, have a story to them. And and I looked back at uh, the artwork for the One Vision Project, and I thought, wow, this would fit really well into that format. And this is not with Raj saying we should do this. I just reached the same conclusion that he had already come to. And I said, I so I put together. Uh, the all told album in order of the way I thought the story would lay out. And I went to Raj and I said, man, this is so cool. Listen to this. And we drove around in my SUV and I played it for him. And he just like, he gets it, I guess, because, <laughs> because he liked it. And we conceived of this project that is really daunting and big and not like anything I've ever heard of anybody else doing. And that's how it kind of came together. 
So how many years start to finish did the concept, you know, the start of the concept to the um, final cut of the record? What was that time frame? Yeah, it was 15 years because the concept was in 1995 and then we had our record release party in 2010. Okay. 20, 26, 2016 or 20, 2016. Oh, oh no, 2016. That's yeah. right. So yeah. it was 21 years. So I remember we, we got the first song we did was Love Alive and it was on 11 11 2011, I think. <laughs> so the, um, you have 11 children, Mike. Mm-hmm. And how many kids do you have, Roger? Five. And what what brought you to the Czech Republic, Roger? Oh. <laughs> uh, Woman. Yeah. <laughs> I hooked up with this lady and uh, we started going, uh, a Czech lady, and we started going back to visit her family like once a year. And God, I just fell in love with the European way of life, the way of living, the sense of community and the sense of frugality over there. And I just loved it so much. And we kept going back year after year that I thought, man, I just want to live over here. I, I love this, this, this way of being. And it's so different from America. America just disgusted me with all these things that I didn't like. And, and then there's just such an adherence to making money in America and people, uh, they don't work to live, they live to work. And it's just the opposite of how life should be to me. And it was the opposite of what the lifestyle uh, was chosen by so many Europeans. So, uh, it was an easy decision to to do that. Well, after living there for a year, uh, the tensions between me and my wife were such that one day she, one morning she uh, suggested that we get a divorce. And I said, well, gee, I think that's a good idea. And so, yeah, so shortly after that, I moved back to America. And uh, I was approached by uh, one of Seattle's nicest nightclubs. Uh, They said, uh, we had a cancellation for Saturday night uh, in two weeks. Would you like to play that gig? And I said, sure. And they said, do you have a band? Oh, yeah, I've got a band. But I didn't have a band. I just moved back from Europe. And so I threw some people together and had this concept of, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll set up a living room on stage with all my living room furniture. And I had my artist friend paint this uh, fireplace situation with a, a, a mirror hanging on it. And the night would be, uh, the performance that the audience saw was a play of us rehearsing for this performance at that nightclub. And so that having that context to work in, anything that went wrong would just be part of the rehearsal. So anything goes. Yeah. So it was a pretty good idea. Gives you some freedom. Yeah, because we didn't, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of time to rehearse with these musicians. So the way this show started was they had a great big red curtain in front of the stage and the curtain goes up and there's Raj Oh, right around this same time, Eminem had come out with a, a version of 
uh, Crazy on You that was called Crazy in Love. And it was a brilliant uh, adaptation of our song. And it was popular. It was really popular on the radio. And so that song comes on and the curtain goes up and there's Raj in his underwear, just his underpants, dancing in front of that mirror and miming to that song. And it was hilarious. <laughs> and that's how the show started. And then it became clear that we'd, you'd hear a knock on the door and then one of the guest artists would come in for the rehearsal. Very clever. Yeah. And and so that was it was... Uh, it was great. It was a real fun show. And we should do it again sometime. Yeah. We should do it at the triple door, maybe. And uh, near the end of the show, I had asked all the musicians to bring suits because we're going to uh, perform a song for a Seattle musician that was just really loved, a great guitar player by the name of Joe Shikani. Uh, two weeks before, he, no, 11 days before, I think. He had been tragically killed in a windstorm where a tree came down and, and fell on him and killed him. And so it was time to play that song right near the end of the night. And I'm, I can't find my shirt. I'm running around backstage looking for the shirt and to my suit. And uh, this friend said, Roger, I'd like you to meet somebody. This is Linda Manning. And when I heard that name, my heart just sank because she was Joe Shikani's girlfriend of four years. So I went over there and, and hugged her. And we hugged for a long time. And we looked deeply into each other's eyes. And something happened there. So uh, we finished the show. And a month and a half later, I found Linda's uh, email address and wrote to her saying that I hadn't been able to forget about that hug. Could we go out to dinner? So we went out to dinner and then we've been together ever since. And that's 10 years ago now. Congratulations. Yeah. So that, that was a, uh, that was a real life changer for me. So I'd like to go back to the, the mid, mid to late seventies in that time frame, and ask you about some of these iconic songs that still to this day um, you hear on the radio and you hear in movies, um, Barracuda, Magic Man, Straight On. I mean, just th there are so many songs that came out of those four albums, those four studio albums that are timeless. And what I'd like to know from both of you, Mike and Roger, is whether at the time that you were creating this music um you knew is it just is it one of those moments where you just know this is a hit and not only is this a hit but this is going to be um legendary you have to back up even more than that to get to the knowing part for me because um prior to calling roger and steve and telling them to move up with ann and i I had this like three-day experience where I was so excited about the, the idea for this band that I couldn't sleep. Uh, and I was going to school, you know, at the university up there, but I, all I could do was stay up all night designing equipment and working on a business plan and, this, and that sort of thing. And then um, when they did move up, 
that forced the issue of, well, am I going to do this or am I going to finish my education? It was like this huge thing for me to have to decide. And, and so it came to the point where one day I had to go, go one way or the other. And I went down and I stood next to the stream, same stream that's in Crazy on You. <laughs> and I stood by that stream and I just, this thing washed over me where I, I, I could see the future. I could see what was going to happen one way or the other. And what I saw in the path of our band was that it would be incredible. It would be so successful and so much fun. And I knew that it would work and I knew how it would end. And I decided, well, it's worth doing. And that for me, that knowing persisted and carried me through a lot of dark, <laughs> doubtful days. Yeah. So it sounds like you knew some great things were going to happen, but it wasn't going to last I knew forever. It. I knew yeah. it. Yeah. So the the songs, Roger, that, that I just mentioned, these these iconic songs, when you were involved in the writing process and recording process of those songs, well, for the, all of the songs, but especially these iconic songs that have um, been timeless. Did you know at the time that they were uh, pretty special or, or was it something that you later accepted and that you maybe didn't know at the time that they were um, going to be hits? When I first started working with Anna Nance and heard their not only musical skills, but their uh, adeptness at songwriting, I was really impressed, really intimidated. And I thought, man, how am I ever going to be a good songwriter? And uh, when it was time to start writing songs for Dreamboat Annie, I didn't really feel like I had any skill at it. You know, I'd written little things that were nice little things, but I hadn't really written something that lyrically had what to me seemed uh, merit or importance. So we lived on the edge of Lighthouse Park at that time in West Van, West Vancouver. And I loved to go out by myself and just wander through the woods in the park. It's virgin forest, some some huge rocks in, in, in here. They're uh, continental, you know, part of the continental drift. Some of the oldest rocks on the North American continent. And I went up on top of one of these big rocks one day and prayed for the ability to be a great songwriter. And then within a day or two, uh, wrote the lick for Sing Child. And that was the beginning of the marriage of hard rock with the uh, lyrical folk-based input from the Wilson sisters. And that marriage proved to be a real great union of directions. And when I heard the lyrics to Crazy on You, I just thought, man, those are brilliant. Those are profound. It's really great. And I remember we were, uh, Mike and Anne and Nancy and I were living together in this A-frame house in Point Roberts, Washington, which was a tip of land, a point of land that uh, hung across the 49th parallel. So the 
you cross the border in, into Canada to get off Point Roberts. Uh, it, it's uh, you can't access it through the United States only by boat. So uh, it was a neat place to live, just south of Vancouver. And one day we're sitting there in our A-frame cabin, and they're working on this song and they've got this galloping guitar part that was influenced by the moody blues and they said raj we want a a, a counter melody kind of line here a, a, a signature line to go against this part what would you what would you play and so i just uh my favorite way of coming up with uh stuff is to not do anything and just listen and I'll hear something in my head. And what I heard in my head that day was da 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 da. And yeah. so, yeah, so that was that. And uh, so much of our co writing together uh, came of being inspired by hearing a great song and then coming up with a part that had to be on that level. So, you know, we we inspired each other to do great work. And, you know, those great songs that they wrote were just fine, but they were elevated by my input. And it was a nice union of, of uh, elements. Was there a, um, a clear process of credits for songwriting that was happening within the band at that time? Um, Not at all. Okay. And a case in point was crazy on you when we were discussing the credits to the songs, who should get what for what participation in songwriting. Uh, my name hadn't been mentioned at all in, in the uh, <clears throat> creation of Crazy on You. And Howard Lease spoke up saying that, you know, that guitar lick is a signature piece of music that stands on its own and is a vital critical part of the song that should uh that you should receive royalties for that and had he not said that i never would have gotten any credit or royalties for that that lick uh but it sounds like there was there was discussion about it at some point but you weren't really jockeying for writing credits but other people were giving you <laughs> suggestions on well, Howard Howard said that you deserve a songwriting credit for that right yeah yeah but but I'm just I'm just curious because I've never been in a band that actually had to worry about songwriting credits because we never made any money in my band um, but the uh, whether it was competitive whether it was a competitive environment or there were hard feelings about um, people getting song credits for songs that you think that you contributed to that you should have gotten credit for was there that type of conflict going on within the band um, that you recall in the 70s well not really uh i always thought i should have gotten more credit for how much musical input i gave to those songs just because i was this font of uh energy and ideas and I don't never felt that I was justly rewarded for that, but it, you know, I'm pretty easygoing and I'm willing to just let stuff slide so I don't have to deal with it. Right. Yeah. I, f I felt that there, there was a lot of jockeying going on because I had to kind of manage it. And the hardest thing for a band to do to become successful is to not break up. <laughs> <laughs> and so, 
uh, it seemed like part of the art of that is trying to keep everybody happy somehow. And, and so I was, had to be the advocate for different people in different situations when they didn't feel it was fair, you know? So yeah, there was a certain amount of that. Yeah. Well, it seems like anytime you add money into, um, an equation, into a relationship, um, there's, there's going to be issues. And it wasn't even money. It was just the idea of money, you know, (laughs) because we were still poor. I mean, compared to what we came later. So these, um, relationships that you had with, um, Mike with, with Ann and Roger with Nancy, um, did they both end around the same time or? Yeah. Well, no, actually, uh, Roger and Nancy broke up first. And when that happened, how uh, difficult was it to continue as a band given that they were no longer together? And I'm asking this of you, Mike, and I'll ask you, Roger, and you may, you might have a different memory of it, but. It was heartbreaking to me because the bond of the four of us was really powerful. And when that bond was broken, we lost something. And Roger, when the relationship ended with Nancy, um, did you get a sense that it was going to be difficult to continue as a band after that point? When I knew the band was over was when we were recording Little Queen down in Seattle. And one day uh, I had an idea for a little musical addition to Love Alive that was really a great idea and presented it to Anne. And she said, no, we're not going to do that. And the way she responded made it clear to me that she was acting out of a position of power that she had now realized she was in and that she was kind of steering the ship to a large degree and she didn't need to uh, have this, she didn't need to uh, incorporate this idea that this guitarist had, this mere guitarist had. So no, it's, we're not going to do that. And I knew that she made that position uh, that choice, that decision, not, it wasn't a musical decision. It was a, uh, a demonstrating her position of power. And as soon as that was uttered, I knew it was over. And I went for this big, long walk and cried and cried and cried and came back to the studio. And uh, in my heart, it wasn't a band anymore, but it, it was much after that, that, that we officially broke up. But yeah, when I split up with Nance, uh, it was just absolutely devastating to me on the deepest level. And I went into a depression that lasted for a long time, and I was really unpleasant to be around because I was just totally bummed out. And uh, it was really, really awful, really awkward and 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 awful to be to be in the band and be going around and playing live. And meanwhile, Nancy's going, she's hanging out now with Derosier, the drummer. And it was so, so painful for me. Uh, it was just awful. Yeah. And the the relationship with Anne ended pretty quickly after and after you left the band, Roger. Um, what, 
what was your your journey in music um until the uh all told album okay so when i was in the band it started uh it actually started before we even had uh the final permutation of heart put together when we were writing writing and recording uh when we were poor we 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 had a little bit of money and so we could uh afford some recording gear uh and made it clear that my singing wasn't on the level where i could sing with them no you can't sing with us you can't sing in tune it wasn't approached as here let me help you become a better singer it was just you can't sing with us and it was a uh, psychological abuse that went on and got deeper and and worse until we finally did split but it uh really hit me on a deep level where i didn't have any confidence that i could sing uh so when i left the band i made up my mind that i was going to become not just a, a a good singer but a great singer so i started taking vocal lessons 2 hours a day 5 days a week from seattle's most uh popular vocal teacher and started writing songs just a lot and uh built a studio in my home where i was going to create an album and have this great comeback and boy it sure didn't happen <laughs> that comeback but i had a new resolve to become a, a really good musician and that was real healthy and that was real good so in this studio uh geez we we uh we just started recording like crazy and we were working with derosier at that time and and joe shikani was in the group and uh we came up with some real brilliant stuff some great songs and really nice high quality recordings and then like we were talking about mike and i went our separate ways and i just kept writing recording writing recording and that's how i amassed over 100 songs to give him later but uh Yeah, so okay. I, I yeah. lost direction. Yeah, so and then that that I think you already talked about um after that family reunion or that meeting at the house where you played the song um for your well for your whole family, the love song that you wrote. Um that kind of transitioned into Mike getting involved in helping with this concept album. Right. Yeah, all told. Okay. Um I'd like to because we have this this common connection of my dad Greg Smith. Um I'd like to ask you about what you remember about Greg. Um and because the listeners don't know yet um who my dad is, he flew the band Heart I think starting in the mid 70s or mid to late 70s and and all the way through the late 80s was um was their private pilot. And I had the good fortune to meet the band Heart uh, backstage at the Paramount, and I wish I remembered the year, but I was little. It was with my sister. Um, it may have been when you were still in the band, Roger, and Mike. You were um, still uh, in the band, um, but I don't remember. And then there was another 
opportunity for, for me to meet them in the mid eighties where I know you weren't around at that time, Roger, but, um, my dad passed away in 2003, um, of a heart attack and I didn't really get a chance to know him very well. Uh, he was gone a lot, you know, flying, he flew, um, Neil Young and John Cougar and Def Leppard and Men at Work and Joni Mitchell and, um, wow. all kinds That's of, amazing. yeah, he, he really lived quite, um, a life and, uh, he's an amazing guy in many ways, but he wasn't around for me to really, uh, hear some of these stories. So what do you remember of my dad, Greg Smith? And either of you can go first. Yeah. Well, we all loved your dad. He was a great guy. So in the world we were in, um, you know, there's a lot of pretty rough and tough, uh, kind of not very polished characters. Um, and so your dad was a very pleasant contrast to that. He was a military guy. So he had, uh, a lot of self-discipline, um, excellent manners. He was very sharp and on the ball. He was very responsible and he had our lives in his hands. And, uh, he saved our life uh, more than once. He was just always great to be around, always in a in a very balanced, uh, logical, stable kind of place, which is what you want in the pilot, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I can I can tell you some of these stories of, of things that happened that were that were pretty cool, uh, where your dad kind of saved our bacon, you could say. I'd, I'd like to hear him if you, yeah. if you have any. Okay. So he had, uh, when we first started working with him, he had a super King air, which is a really nice airplane. I remember that plane. Yeah. yeah. And it was just big enough for the band and, uh, a couple of, uh, staff people and our luggage. And, uh, but it was, a, it was a nice airplane at a long glide ratio and, we really liked that plane. But one day, uh, we were just leaving for a tour and something, uh, required, uh, mechanical work on the plane. And we had to get something at the last minute. And Greg found a, a plane. <laughs> we were just lucky to find anything, but he found this, this plane from Alaska that was being retired. It had been doing a lot of bush flights up there and it was, it was bigger than what we were used to. Uh, but it seemed pretty tired when we saw it. And so we were taking off from SeaTac, which has a really long runway, and flying to Chicago. And we, we, we're going down the runway, and I'm thinking, why aren't we in the air yet? You know, <laughs> we're getting close to the end of the runway, and the plane finally lifts off. And it feels like we're just clearing the trees at the other end. And... We're heading east, and we come to the mountain range east of the Seattle Cascades. And we're just, I'm looking at the mountains coming, and I'm thinking, are we going to get over those things? You know? <laughs> we just clear the mountains. We, we had a really heavy load of, of, of uh, baggage and people and fuel. And so uh, Greg used to like to let us come up and hang out in the, in the uh, cabin in the pilot's area. And... I like to go up there because I was really fascinated with uh, flight and I was thinking about 
becoming a pilot myself. And so I was looking at all the gauges and there were gauges that showed the left fuel tank fuel level and the left uh, uh, both fuel tanks fuel level left and right and the rate of consumption. So I was watching these gauges while your dad's flying the plane and this plane came with a co-pilot uh, from from the plane the own whoever owned it supplied a pilot too. So I'm watching the gauges and I notice that one fuel tank had quite a bit more fuel than the other. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Why aren't they balanced? And then I'm looking at the rate of consumption. Well, the, the tank that was fuller had a higher rate of consumption than the one that was emptier, which I thought that doesn't make sense. So I told your dad, uh, well, I didn't tell, say anything at first. I kept watching it thinking that I must not understand something about this. <laughs> and after a while, I started to be kind of nervous about it because I thought, how do you know how much fuel you have when these things are telling two different stories? So I told your dad. And he looked at the gauges, and he didn't say anything for a minute. And then he said, you're right. It doesn't make sense. And so then he... Um, and we were getting close to Chicago. I guess we were, you know, I said, you know, how do we know how much fuel we have? And he says, we don't. We don't know. So we had to do an emergency landing in Wisconsin somewhere. And, uh, and we couldn't, you know, the plane had, when they started looking at it, there were all kinds of things about it that weren't airworthy. And so we had to get a different plane. So that that was one interesting thing, but that was nothing compared to what was going to happen later on on that tour, um, where the cowboy pilot that came with the plane, and he was like a real piece of work, that guy, really different than your dad. Um, like we, when we were in Chicago, um, he wanted, I think we all went to the Playboy Club or something. Well, he was the, the the other pilot was having way too much fun. Didn't want to come home with us. So the next day, uh, when we were leaving to go somewhere, nobody could find him. <laughs> we had to leave without him. But uh, so uh, later on in the tour, we were in San Francisco, heading to Las Vegas, and. We had another airplane that was just like the first one, but it was newer. It was pretty new. And so we were flying along, going over the Sierras, I guess. And all of a sudden, there was this bang. This, this felt like we hit a brick wall, and the plane went straight down at full speed. The plane is going down. It's yeah, at full speed, going down at full speed. And that was such an intense experience. I really thought we were going to die. We all did. We 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 were all just I was, we were terrified. just pinned to our seats, you know. I don't know what g-forces it was, but it was intense. So what happened was that the co-pilot was sleep with his feet up on the dashboard somehow and his feet had slid off and somehow put down the landing gear and caused us to go into that dive and the, so what your dad did was 
with all those incredible G-forces, he had to climb under the co-pilot seat, I think it was, and hand crank the landing gear back up while we're in the dive. I don't know how he could even do that or have the presence of mind to do that, but that's what he did. And we leveled off just barely above the land. Yeah. And when we got to Las Vegas, they had to have these spotter planes come out and look at us, and they brought all all the fire trucks and everything. And, you know, we didn't know if we were going to be able to land or not, but we did. But that was really, really incredible of him. Yeah. And so did, did the co-pilot get fired at that point? <laughs> yeah, he did. That was it for him. And all of these planes required a co-pilot at that time, right? I mean, these were big enough planes where you, you needed it. Yeah, I don't think we even continued with that plane after that. But uh, then there was another time where we were taking off from Raleigh, and uh, it was kind of known for turbulence around there. And that's we had the Gulfstream at that point, which was a much bigger plane that was all decked out uh, for us, really super luxurious. And... Uh, we were, Anna and I were sitting, we had like a couch in there and uh, we were sitting together and we hit this turbulence that was so incredible. The wings were flapping up and down like a bird. I, I don't even know how metal can bend that much. That was just astonishing. And she grabbed my leg with her and her fingernails punched right through my denim jeans, just that's how strong she grabbed my leg. It was, and but we didn't die. We, you know, we survived that somehow. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. Uh, uh, you know. Yeah. Another thing about your dad was he was always really positive, upbeat, in a good mood. He was uh, a beacon of light when he would come around. You know, he's just uh, just happy. Yeah. And it was just. And he liked our band too. Yeah, that helped. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. He we was a some, huge fan. We had some really fun times with him. I remember one time we were in St. Louis and uh, we were playing at the arena there back to back where I think Queen played the first night and we played the second night or vice versa. And your dad was like, we were like big Queen fans and, and uh, friends, personal friends with those guys and uh, loved their music and really felt like, you know, they were really special. <laughs> uh, I asked your dad if he liked the band, and he said, well, they're okay, but they're not as good as you guys. <laughs> oh, that's cool. <laughs> that's so cool. Well, it means a lot to me to hear from you about my dad, because I, you know, I unfortunately have to learn about his life through his friends and see you can just you know. look at you and you've got kind of a smile in your eyebrows a smile in your eyes it's the same thing that your dad i mean you look like a happy person you're you're attractive because of your positiveness that you have well th thank you for saying that because i looked up to my dad as someone who was kind of larger than life and someone who just had a lot of natural charisma and um I've never considered myself to be someone who had charisma, you know, that was attractive, not, not physically attractive, but just this thing that people have, you know, in, in a room, when you walk into a room, he had it, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, I want to be around that guy. Mm -hmm. He mm -hmm. knows what's going on. <laughs> you know, he had that kind of charisma, uh, but that's pretty cool. Thanks for sharing that. So, uh, you know, I was talking about 
me taking my own path with uh, guitar influences and tr trying to take the road less chosen kind of idea. But I was most moved by the triumvirate of Clapton, Page, Beck. Each one of those guys were really innovative in their own ways with the influence that they took from the blues and everywhere else that they took influences from. Uh, it's To me, uh, they just had such a innovative, inventive take on music. And that's what I loved most about their direction, their guitar playing direction. And it really revealed a dedication on their part to become as good as they were. Yeah. Well, um, I would be remiss if I did not ask you about your concert last night because I was there with Jason, my producer, and um, it was pretty remarkable to see you bring up on stage with you the School of Rock kids um, to, I mean, right out of the gate, you bring these kids up on stage uh, and really blew the audience away with musicianship from, from young people and encouragement from you. Um, can you tell us more about how you got involved with School of Rock and how that resulted in those kids being up on stage with you last night in Edmonds? Mike and I have done other shows with uh, kids before, and it's just such a joy to see these kids uh, approach something that's really scary, going out on stage and performing for people. But they have what we had when we were younger. We had a dream, and these kids have their dream. They, they want to do this thing with their life. And we give them a chance to do it, and it's just so much fun. You know, you you uh, get together. We we had a rehearsal, and you point out all these things that they need to be aware of, and that needs to change, that needs to get better. And then you let them go for a few days, and then we do the show, and you observe that wow, they really did their homework, and and they did what they were supposed to do. And I'm standing on the stage next to these 12 to 18-year-old kids, just seeing them so happy and beaming. They're nervous, but they're, I've, part of the lesson that I gave them was that you take adrenaline and you make it work for you instead of against you. And then it is empowering. And uh, it's just such a joy having them up there. Uh, I'm going to be doing a lot more work with the School of Rock because, uh, you know, uh, when you get older, you realize that uh, you you need to pass stuff on. If you've got something of real value in you, what good is it if you never pass it on to younger people? It's kind of selfish and uh, it's a shame. So... Yeah, so to, to, to do a little bit of teaching is really nice and really appropriate. Yeah, and I, I, I just I was so impressed with the energy that you brought to the show start to finish. 
and it was just so clear to see uh, that you not only were a rock star and a rock legend, you still are to this day. I mean, bringing it. It's funny because, you know, there are other people out there who do parodies of rock stars. And it's uh, it's almost embarrassing in a way to go out there and act, you know, do act like this rock star. But it's not an act. It's genuine uh, motivation stemming from a deep feeling of music. And so when we're playing these great songs like Mistral Wind, I can't help but uh, assume my rock god self and enter this other dimension of, uh, you know, you the, the, the song is so great to perform it with justice. You have to assume uh, this position of uh, the song plays you. Yeah, the song plays us. And and so in my not wanting to be like other performers, uh, I cast away any limits or any uh, encumbrances to my freedom of how I can move on stage. So I've got all these wild, wacky moves that I do and uh, have kind of perfected a, a style of doing that that nobody else does. And when I got home last night, I, I, I kind of looked back in my mind's eye at, at who I was on stage there last night and uh, how set apart from other performers I am. And it's really nice to see that I, you know, I've created this uh, persona that stands alone <laughs> For better or worse. Yeah. And uh, it's not that I'm proud of that, but I'm pleased that uh, I was able to choose uh, a, a direction that is my own and, and uh, is singular and u unique. And it's, it's so much fun going out and being that character. I have, I have two more questions. Um, very briefly, we are here in a um, barn. It was built in 1906. Yeah, built in 1906. Historic barn in King County, correct? Yeah. And um, it's remarkable. I mean, we're in the loft of the barn now, and it's these. you've got these high vaulted ceilings. You've got timber frames around. And just so the audience knows where the creaking is coming from, you know, we have this wood creaky floor. And, and so when we're moving around our chairs, we're hearing hearing some of the creaking of the wood floors. Um, but there is a, there's a stage downstairs below the loft. Um, and this whole building just seems very special and unique. Can you tell us briefly about, um, the story of this, this it's another studio. magical place. It is. <laughs> yeah. it was, this is a place that Mike found and the way he found it is, is, is a, uh, illustration of why he's the magic man. Take it, Mike. So we have this friend who is in the TV business, and he was telling us as uh, we're having a conference call, I'm driving along, talking with Raj and this guy, and he's saying, you know, you guys should have your own TV show. And he said, oh, I can help you do that. You could do something like um, Daryl's house. Only, oh, I've seen that. Only yeah. different, you know. Yeah. And I said, yeah, you know, 
uh, somebody said, maybe we could have a barn or something. And I'm driving along and I think, yeah, that'd be cool. Something different. Um, and I know a, of a barn and I, I think I was driving back from Roger's house or something and I was going to be going past it. So I thought, I'm just going to go stop at that barn and see what it's like. And never been here before. And uh, I got here and looked around to see if I could find somebody to talk to about it, knock on the door downstairs. And this this guy who kind of reminded me of Santa Claus shows up. And uh, I said, you know, would you be interested in renting this barn? And he said, come in here. I want to talk to you. And <laughs> he's he's got the shocking white hair and, and uh, he's in his mid-70s. And he said, this is really bizarre that you're asking me this question because I just got back from my attorney's office where we were discussing the fact that I'm thinking about renting this barn. And you're the first guy I've seen since I met this meeting. So he says, uh, come on up, I'll show, show you the space. So we walk up the stairs and it's been converted into kind of an event space with 35 foot high ceilings and they had a little tiny stage in here then. And at that time, all the walls had big holes in them so you could see daylight through the walls and everything. And they had built this upper apartment with a kitchen and sauna and two bedrooms. And it's just beautiful. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. And you've anyway. got the, you've got the stage uh, for performing. We, we built, yeah. we kind of redid the, the room so we could record in here. And yeah. I mean, talk about man cave. Yeah, um, it's awesome. On, on steroids. This yeah. is just really incredible. Um, my last question is, what is next for Mike and Roger Fisher? And where can, where can people find you on social media or in new projects that you're working on? Yeah, rogerfisher.com uh, is kind of our home on the web. And we are continuing to flesh out the One Vision Project. We've just uh, finished recording and are about to release our Heart of the Blues album, which is a whole really oh cool story in it's itself. A great album. I mean, All Told is a great album. Uh, at some point, I'm going to make a video that is something like, this is what it used to be like. People would get together and they would sit down and they would have drinks and maybe have a puff of cannabis or something and listen to an album. And this is what I suggest that you try, young people or whoever, and try it with this All Told album. Get some people together, sit down, and listen to this from beginning to end, and you will be blown away. Anyway, uh, so the, the, the latest album, Heart of the Blues, is like that too. It isn't really meant to be a concept album per se, but the way the songs all dovetail and... Uh, illustrate recurring motifs of some very valuable information is profound. It's just, it's just such a great moving album. Really hope some people check that out. And then we've also got uh, our own kind of tea. It has 31 herbs, organic herbs from around the world. It's super good for you. And uh, yeah, I've been sipping on this through the whole interview. Yeah. yeah and, good stuff. Uh, a lot of, it's becoming pretty popular. And then we've also just come out with a, a new product called Heart of the Blues, 
whiskey. It's 100 proof, 100% rye, really smooth, great whiskey. So uh, these are things to be uh, looking for in your community, folks. I, and I can personally attest that that whiskey is very smooth. I yeah. had it last night at the concert and excellent. Nice work. Thank you both for your time and for the stories. It was really fun. Yeah. And we'd like a transcript of it too and uh, uh, permission to use it in our book, Bros. Absolutely. It's yours. Great. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Dream Path Podcast. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to your favorite podcast service and give me a rating and review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. I appreciate your time. And as always, go find your dream path.